Am I on? There we go. There, am I starting to be? Well, good morning, everyone, regardless. How are you? Hope everybody's well. Is everybody ready to get back into the Psalms? This morning, if I'm ready to go, because just wanted to say hi and make sure everybody was okay. This morning, we're going to go back to our new series in the Psalms titled, Certain Truths for Uncertain Times. And as you know, we are going through, or maybe using the Psalms, meaning we're not going consecutively. Uh, we started with Psalm 1. I was going to do Psalm 2 today, but I had a feeling Pastor John MacArthur was going to do something on Psalm 2, and he read from Psalm 2. He just didn't preach from it. So I will preach from that next week, just didn't want to overlap or double dip. So this time we're going to, instead of Psalm 2, I want you to go to a very significant Psalm, and that is Psalm 139. Psalm 139 begins our time, and I will start in verse 1 and read through just to verse 12. Psalm 139. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the dark will bruise me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not night for you, and the day is as bright as the day. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It was April 12, 1961, when Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was hailed through the world as being the first. Nearly 25 years of age, Gagarin was not only being celebrated as being the Columbus of the cosmos, as being the model Russian of superiority, but he was also the poster boy for the communist regime that had thrust atheism upon their country. He was, in a word, a massive star. While still in orbit, while commenting about the indescribable hue of the blue that he saw shining from the earth, he looked out the window of his ship and was noted for saying, I don't see any God up here. You see, the world we live in is pretending that they don't see God anywhere. We live in a world hoping against hope that if they deny what is obvious to them, if they deny what is obvious to them by repressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1, if they continue to tell themselves that they just don't see God, then maybe, just maybe, God won't see since him. The Apostle Paul says it's so much because what is known about God is evident to us, for God made it evident to us. He is invisible because he is spirit. He is invisible because of the very fact that he is God and extends beyond his creation. And yet, because he is not seen, he is thought not to see. He is thought not to be. The world echoes the same mantra as the cosmonaut before them, we don't see any God down here. And yet, ironically, man also knows that from the moment of his birth, he has a built-in sense of being watched. 
He knows he's being washed. He, he knows he's being washed by God. He knows that he is seen by his creator, but he represses this truth in unrighteousness and he pretends to be incognito. Now, if there was one place in all scripture that you would fly to so you could gain some kind of assurance about this inescapable presence of God, I'm sure. Psalm 139 has been called the crown of the Psalms. It's because it's one of the best loved of all Psalms in all of the scripture. And I say that because Psalm 139, and we see in 24 verses, the ever-present God on display in a way that is almost unparalleled in all of scripture. I say that again because I think it's safe to say that probably nowhere in Scripture are the great incommunicable attributes of God set before us in such clear glory. His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, all are set forth in striking, profound ways as we look at this magnificent psalm. Nowhere is there more of an overwhelming sense of the fact that man is inundated and encompassed about God. He is saturated on every side with God, and yet at the same time, nowhere is there a more emphatic assertion of the inscapability of God. Actions are made more practical, more life-altering, and it is here that King David puts theology on like skin. The psalm is a song of an invited examination. An invited examination. It's a song recorded to us by God where David cries out and longs for God's approval at the same time also praying for his own vindication. Now, by the way of observation, I want you to notice as I read how David begins this song in verse one by affirming that God has searched him. God has searched me. God does indeed know my heart. God does indeed, and then by the end of verse 23, he finds himself pleading with God that we didn't read to search him even more. What begins with, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me, ends this psalm with, search me, O God, and know my heart. He seeks God. He seeks God's ways. He seeks God's approvals. He knows to gain this approval is to acknowledge God's inescapability. To acknowledge God's utter omnipresence in his life in every possible way. And he does this to affirm what he's certain of as well is to assert what he desires to be true. Though I know you know me, I want you to know me more. I want to know you. You see, in life, there's only a handful of different reasons that we can give ourselves to tell us that God is watching and what are our reactions to that. Either you're going to evade his watching or you're going to encourage his examination. David believed he was right before God, standing with God. He believes that what he invites God to do to search his heart, he will be found righteous because when you hate what God hates, you desire his examination. But when you love what God hates, you escape that examination, or at least you try. Towards the end of the psalm in Psalm 20, uh, Psalm uh, verses, excuse me, 21, 22, David becomes those who hate you, O Yahweh, verse 21. And do I not revile those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. But then he says, after this kind of righteous indignation, he pauses for a moment and he says that his desire, though, is to be fully forthright with God. Maybe he's crossed a line. So in verse 23, he says, search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So he begins with this invitation of God for him examination and he ends the psalm in the same way. So for the sake of context, just to make an observation, 
he reminds himself that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Again, look at verse 1. Oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. The verse there, to dig deep. Dig deep in me. I'm begging you, God, to cut into me, to lay bare my most innermost nature. He's, he's appealing to God to be like men are when they search for gold. Go deeper and deeper, layer upon layer, always looking for that treasure that one day may be found. So search me, dig me, bring those deep parts to light and know my heart, the center of my personality, my innermost self. Why do I say that? Because, you know, knowing that God knows me altogether is either going to be the biggest blessing of my life or the most excruciating horror of my life. So as a natural extension from knowing that God knows him completely, he begins to speak to the fact that God sees him entirely. And that's why I want to spend the majority of our time this morning, verses 7 through 12. And I do want to do that because though at times in this series we will go through the entire presence in our lives, I want to focus on God's omnipresence. And so if you're taking notes, you can think of it this way. We're going to look at three certainties about God's omnipresence. Three absolute truths that David affirms concerning the escapability of God. God is everywhere you are now, number one. God is everywhere you will be, number two. And God is everywhere you could be, number three. I think I'm going to throw a fourth point, depending on our time, in there too, so we'll see how it goes. But these are the, through these three certainties is my prayer that these truths will be, I hope, transforming a power in your life to remember that what we know about God brings us closer to knowing God himself in a way that is profound and distinct. So certainty number one, the first certainty concerning God's omnipresence that David asserts is this. Number one, God is everywhere you are. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? David learned very profoundly that everywhere he went, there God was. He went where God was every time he turned around, every time he stopped, every time he moved to the left or to the right, God was everywhere he was. I remember when my wife, Lori, was a little girl her parents had an elderly woman who would, from time to time, babysit her and her brothers. Uh, sometimes he would, she would come to the Granada Hills house, and sometimes they would go to her house nearby. And Lori, being raised Jewish, if you don't know that, uh, remembers this lovely woman to be a devote, devoted Christian, a devoted Christian. In fact, she told me that she would answer the phone, and instead of saying hello, she would say, praise the Lord. That's how she would <laughs> answer. So this lady's on fire for Christ. Well, Lori also remembers that when they would go to her house, she had some very unique, had eyes that moved. <laughs> so wherever you were in the room, Jesus was watching you. You know, have you ever been to Disneyland, like in the haunted uh, mansion ride? It's like, so here she is, this little Jewish girl, um, before she came to Christ, trying to dodge the eyes of Jesus all night long as she's being babysat. King David is saying, I too am Jewish, but I'm not trying to dodge the eyes of God anymore because wherever God is and wherever I am, we're together. Where can I go? He says, where can I flee? It's not that God, David was trying to escape God, but rather he was acknowledging that it would be futile. It's futile to think that he doesn't see and understand. It's futile to think that God's not there because God is there. 
God's spirit and his presence are understood through this Hebrew parallelism that he speaks of here. Where can I go? In other words, his, his full essence of deity in this triune relational presence is inescapable to David. And David had learned that the hard way. After he had committed the unthinkable sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then conspired to have Uriah, her husband, to be sent to the front line so that he might be murdered in the famous psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, which we will get to in this series. David cries out with all his heart against thee, and thee only have I done evil in your sight. David knew that it was more than evil from God's perspective. It was evil in his presence. Our pastor, John MacArthur, tells us, quote, whenever you sin, it is as if, as if you have ascended the clouds, walked into the throne room of God, walked up the foot of the throne of God, and performed your sin right there. You see, you are doing what you do in the presence of God, a very sobering thought. We know this is true. The scriptures speak of it, Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. It says one of my favorite places in all of the scriptures, when you go to the gospel of John, when Jesus is first coming on the scene and John the Baptist's disciples are being directed away from John and, and wanting now to follow Jesus. And John says, he, he must increase and I must decrease. And so in chapter one of the gospel of John, Jesus walks by John and he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They all start following him, and they're, they're going after him, and they start to tell their friends, we found him, we found the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Philip finds Nathanael and tells him to come, though he's reluctant at first. And when he does meet Jesus, the following is recorded for us in the book of John. You don't have to turn there, but if you know, it's John 1, uh, verses 47 through 49. And Jesus saw Nathanael, whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, from where do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than this? Jesus is saying, I've seen your heart. I see that you're pure. There's no deceit. Yes, you're a true believer, Nathaniel. I see you. How? Because I'm omniscient. Because I see all things. You can trust in my omniscience because I'm omnipresent as well. I know all things because I see all things. And I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And I was there with you, watching you. Sometimes people think of the kenosis that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2 means that he only expressed his, commun his communicable attributes of God while he was on earth, but it doesn't mean his heart's John 2, 25, and then here as well in the first chapter of John, his omnipresence. He's everywhere all the time. So this idea that his knowledge is complete because his presence is complete, nothing is removed from his knowledge, nothing is distant from his presence. I know all things, I see all things, because I know and see all things. A heathen philosopher once asked, where is God? And a Christian answered, let me first ask you, where is he not? This is true for believers and unbelievers. Go with me real quick to the book of Acts. I just want to show you something. I think it's amazing. Acts chapter 17, because when you're there, you remember that's where Paul is at Mars Hill, and he makes some really insightful uh, observations 
that I want to show you there, giving on how to really explain to unchurched people who were not only pagan worshipers, but they believed in many gods, how to explain to them the truth. And so these philosophers are there in this Athenian culture, and it says the Epicureans and the Stoics, Acts 17, 18, uh, were commonly seen as battling one another in many points, at the same time being somewhat alike. They, they were saying it was self-evident to them that there were gods, and the gods were models of happiness, and yet they lived away from them. And they believed that the supreme good of man was pleasure, so their objective with each other was to free men from the fear of the gods so that they would be free to pursue the goal of their pleasure. And then Paul says this, just go to verse 27. And he tries to point this out to them, this one true God, and he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So man knows that God exists. He moves and has his being in God. He knows God is. He knows that God should be sought. He has been created by God. He's accountable to seek the face of the God who created him. And his longings are ordered in such a way that he is naturally drawn to seeking the source of his yearnings, which is in his creator. But because of the fact that he chooses to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, ultimately he seeks that which is the creation rather than the creator. Without seeking God, it's like trying to catch the wind. In the same way that the fish moves in the water, it's the same way as the bird flies in the air. So it is true that wherever we move, we're in God. As the old divines have said, we are, not, we are like sponges in the sea, not to our bones and the air is to our breath. Fascinating thing to contemplate. A.W. Tozer said, if God were to manifest himself to people all over the earth, every nightclub would be emptied or turned into a happy prayer meeting. Every house of ill fame would be emptied in five minutes, and everyone with a deep repentance and sorrow of heart would be down on his knees before God, asking for forgiveness and weeping tears of happiness. It's the presence of God that gives bliss to moral creatures and the absence of God that brings everlasting woe to moral creatures. But still, but still the scriptures tell us that it is not just unbelievers who try to flee from the presence of God. Though the lost pretend that he is not present anywhere, we, the found, pretend to believe that he is present everywhere, but we find ourselves living as if his presence was nowhere. Practical atheism. Go with me to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. I want to show you something that might be comforting if you think all the false teaching on TBN is the only false teaching that's ever happened, uh, you will be pleased and surprised to find out that false teaching and false teachers have always been around, and it's never escaped God's purview. Here in chapter 23, the prophet Jeremiah records the Lord's diatribe against those who say they speak for God, but don't speak for God. They speak for themselves. They, they bring a word to the uh, people of God, but in reality, it's just their own false and wicked imaginations. And look at verse 16 of Jeremiah 23. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into vanity. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They keep saying to those who spurn me, Yahweh has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who 
But who has stood in the counsel of Yahweh that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and heard? Behold, the storm of Yahweh has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling storm. It will whirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has done and established the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they had stood my counsel, they would have caused my words to be heard by my people, and I would have turned them back from their evil way and from their evil deeds. In other words, to put it in the common vernacular of our day, did you really think that they could speak words concerning me, attribute those things and falsehoods to my name, tell lies to my people by telling them that all is well and peace is coming and not think that I didn't hear you? You think I wasn't present? Don't you understand that you can't avoid me? You cannot escape me and my judgment is just. Stephen Charnock in his great classic on the attributes of God says, do you think I do not behold everything in the earth as well as in heaven? Am I locked up within the walls of my palace and cannot peep out to behold the things done in the world? Or that I am so linked to pleasure in my palace of glory as earthly kings are in their courts that I have no mind or leisure to take notice of the carriages of men upon the earth. God says, I fill the heavens and the earth. Not one of his parts finds a place and another part finds another place. The whole being of God fills the universe all at once. He does not even have to use his knowledge and his power to be at all places at once. He does not multiply himself and to be everywhere at once. God is everywhere you are now. There's a second certainty. But number two, God is everywhere you will be. God is everywhere you will be. And look with me back in Psalm 139 at verse 8. David goes on to say, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. As you know, I have the privilege of conducting memorial services here at Grace Community Church. And it's been my practice at the end of that time to sometimes mention this following thought. I say, according to recent statistics, the current population of the world is 7.98 billion people. In addition to that, it is estimated that the average life expectancy in America is 81 years for women and 77 years for men. Now, if you consider the longest documented lifespan of a woman in France who died at the age of 122 years and realized the average of 77 years and longest is 123 years, let's say, then I think it's safe to say that in 125 years, we will find 7 billion people who have died. And you and I, my dear friends, are among them. Death comes to all of us. The Bible is very clear. Once a man or woman dies, there are only two definitive destinations charted for them. No more nor less. There's heaven and there's hell. The book of Hebrews tells us it's been appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So we will be judged, every single one of us, and the destination will be handed out and you will either be in heaven or hell in 125 years from this day, give or take a little. And David tells us here that no more of us, some of us more than others. Uh, and David tells us here that no matter where you will be, get this, no matter where you go, God will be there too. You can't, I mean, you think we can affirm that we know God's going to be in heaven because we affirm his presence in heaven because God's presence in heaven is what makes heaven heaven. 
In Revelation 21, 3, the apostle writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Chapter 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face. So clearly, God's presence is profoundly, beautifully put on display in heaven. And all those who love him know that, and David knew that. He didn't have the book of Revelation, but he did know through the inspiration of the Spirit of God that the one place he couldn't avoid God was heaven. Psalm 11, 4 and 5 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the soul too. We contemplate that and we shake our heads and we say, wait a second, isn't the hell the place where Satan's going? Isn't hell where the demons are going? Isn't hell where all those who've rejected Jesus Christ are? But how is God there too? Matthew Henry's famous commentary is helpful here when he says, about the different possibilities of what it means when the psalmist talks about this particular idea of making bed in Sheol. If I make my bed in Sheol, A-A, he says it could be a place of hiding. It could be a place of hiding as if someone tries to hide themselves in the grave. On May 19, 2010, a 19-year-old Philadelphia woman named Nicole Kelly learned that she had outstanding bench warrants for her arrest in Delaware County, and she was arraigned in the district court. I can't do this, she told the sheriff's deputy, and according to documents. She ran to the Brown Funeral Home, where she hid in a display coffin for about four hours, says the county sheriff. When the funeral home owner, Dan Brown, and his wife returned, they noticed that one of the lights for the telephone line was lit. And when Brown picked up the phone, Kelly answered and said, I have the wrong number, and then hung up, according to the court documents. Well, after the phone lit up again, Brown recognized that the call wasn't coming from the beyond. (laughs) And so his wife was told to call the police. He ran to the second floor showroom where the sheriff deputy said they grabbed Kelly, climbing out of the casket, who was trying to flee and wrestled her to the ground. You think you can hide from God in a grave? Do you think you can hide from God in a casket? Do you think you can hide from righteousness and law? So perhaps David's trying to illustrate concerning Sheol as the place of hiding. He says we should, this is from Matthew Henry, we, should we dig as deep as we can underground and think to hide ourselves there, we should be mistaken. God knows that path which the vulture's eye never saw, and to him all the earth is all surface. There's also another possibility that David meant Sheol in the context of the state of the dead, not hiding in a grave, but actually being dead. But what I think the scripture affirms here, that Sheol is best understood as the place of the damned, the place of the damned. If I make my bed in hell where there is no rest day or night, thousands, of course, will make their bed, millions in the flames. Behold, David says, thou art there. You are there. That your power, your justice is there. Proverbs 15, 11 speaks of Sheol lying open before the Lord. Six, 6 as well. The place of the dead, the grave where every man is handed is transparent like glass to God. God says, I don't care where they go. I'll find them. I don't care how far you run. I'm there. 
So God is everywhere first in that nothing escapes his omnipresent sight. Nothing can hide from his eyes, but nothing can also escape from his presence, the presence of God. I've heard people say in their ignorance over the years, well, if I'm going to hell, then at least I'll be there with all my friends and we'll just party in hell. You've probably heard that too. But there is an uninvited guest there. There's an uninvited guest that will make hell indescribably unbearable. And he is the omnipresent one. He is the one who is everywhere all the time. Go back with me real quick to Revelation 14. I want you to listen closely to John's vision and how he, for those who worship the beast, he says in Revelation 14, let me read 9 and 10. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb will be there. It has been said that the important thing to keep in mind is the distinction of God's essence in relationship to his people. He is everywhere in his essence, but only certain places in his relationship. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says God's presence is being present to either punish, sustain, or to bless for God's presence in different ways in different places. Hell, nor any number of places, say a snowflake, yet his indivisible personality, metaphysical presence is everywhere. He's there. There's just no relationship. So you see, God is everywhere you will be, either in heaven or hell. But the nature of his presence is a very different depending on where you reside. There is a third certainty of God's omnipresence that David asserts in this psalm, and that not only is God everywhere you are now, and not only is God everywhere you will also be, but number three, God is everywhere you could be. Everywhere you could be, he's everywhere you are now, God is everywhere you will be, and God is everywhere you could be. And we're going to see that in verse 9 of Psalm 139. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, the right hand will lay hold of me. David's perspective goes from life beyond to life terrestrial. And so now David sings forth to us, whether you go north or south, east or west, up or down, no matter where you could go, God is there. The wings of the dawn, he says here in verse 8, the wings, excuse me, verse 9, the wings of the dawn. If you were to speed across the earth on the wings of the dawn, no matter where you fly throughout the entire universe, be sure God is on board your flight. One of the saddest, most devastating truths, I think, of our modern world is that you see in the news grown men, men that certainly no better attempt to become anonymous, they avoid detection, and so they fly to all kinds of places all over the world just to be able to engage in sinful acts that hope that will never be found out. They're surprised. Did you know, according to the latest statistics, that we are told if you spend a day in London, your image may be captured up to 300 times by cameras? Did you know that those include 10,000 CCTV surveillance cameras in London alone? 
those that protest wanting to be watched might go back to George Orwell's 1984 book where he wrote, there was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment, how often or not, on what system. The thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time, end quote. Implication being, no one wants to be watched all the time. No one wants to be watched so they can pursue their own sinful desires. And David knew it, and it's always been that way ever since the beginning of time. So in the verses before us, what we have here, we're just reminded that there's different ways that we can resist where we resist his purity and we can resist his purposes. Let me just briefly speak of resisting his purity. You don't have to go there, but you know, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve had just sinned. They just realized that they were naked. They tried to clothe themselves. And it says in Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I remember reading a few years ago about an old rabbi who was asked by his disciple, Rabbi, how did God not know where they were? To which the rabbi answered, it wasn't that God didn't know where they were. He just wanted them to know where he was. So Adam hid from the presence of the Lord because sin had, and had convinced him that God was not omnipresent. You see, when a man tries to sin, when a woman tries to sin, they try to go away from other people. And so you hide from men, you hide from women because you never want to allow yourself to be seen in front of certain men and women for the fear of this sin would be revealed. So you try to conceal it. And so the impurity of your heart is, could be known. So you tried again to, to hide. But how dreadful it is when we realize that we all sin much more in front of God than of anyone else. And we try to convince ourselves that we'll never be found out. The thief steals because he thinks no one sees. The adulterer commits adultery because he thinks no one sees. The liar lies because he thinks no one will find out, and yet God knows because he's everywhere you ever could be. It just because God is invisible doesn't mean he's not there. There's another way we think of risen the remotest part of the sea. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if it, someone would ever dare try to hide from God in the depth of the sea, it wouldn't matter because God's there too. Now, who would try to escape God in an ocean? Who would resist the purposes of God? Oh, did you say Jonah? Yes, yes. You don't have to turn there, but you obviously know Jonah was going to Nineveh because of the weakness of that city. The Lord desires Jonah to, to give the gospel uh, he, he wants them to, to give them life, and Jonah runs from God into the sea until later he is swallowed up by a fish, and the greatest thing that ever happened to him was being swallowed up by that fish because then he starts to pray. So he hides in this ship, and David says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your... that God's omnipresence is there to save and to support and to sustain. He then once cast into the depth of the sea, now prays and is glad that God sees him. There's a confidence, and I want to go quickly here for our time. There's a confidence that no matter how far we run away from God, he'll never run away from us. 
Even though the Lord is fully present everywhere, this does not mean that we always feel His presence equally. He's free to make us feel His proximity more strongly at some times than other times. Yet, though we may not feel Him strongly at all times, we know that He's present nonetheless. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Times can be very, very dark, and we might feel God is far, far away, but darkness is not truly dark to him. Look at verses 11 through. He goes on to say, surely the darkness will bruise me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark too dark for you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So whether the darkness comes uninvited or the darkness comes because you invite the darkness, darkness and light are the same. He is the inescapable God. I remember when the boys were young. Boy, I've got so many stories. Give me just five more minutes. Uh, uh, I remember when the boys were young, and we used to play hide-and-go-seek, and obviously we don't do that anymore. But... Uh, <laughs> It would just be so fun because we'd sit there and kind of discern, okay, who's going to be the person that counts? And that means one person's counting, the other two have to hide. And as soon as like, they start to count one, it's like utter chaos. You know, have you seen it in cartoons where their feet are moving, but they're not going anywhere, you know? And they're just like, I've got to get out of here. It was just so funny. And they would hide in the most predictable places. I mean, I mean, with all due respect, Converse tennis shoes over there and sticking from behind the piano or they're in the shower stall. You can hear them giggle too, you know, because again, they're playing hard to get. And the fun part was, I think they were giggling is because they wanted to be found. They want to be found. At the top of the stairs in our home, we have a piece of art, and it has the following words carved into it. Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest in every room. God is everywhere you are now. God is everywhere you will be. God is everywhere you could be. And I'm going to slip this in, just one brief note. God is everywhere you have been. God is everywhere you have been. And look at verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were not one of them. Here's the point. Before you were ever born, before you ever did anything good or bad, before you ever had ever been anywhere, God was present with you. He saw you. He knew you. He was present when life was first given to you, and he's never stopped being with you. When you were a child, when you were innocent, before you knew right and wrong, he was present. When you were in school, wrestling with growing up and struggling with all the wrong choices that come as being an adolescent, he was present. When you let yourself forget him, pretending that he's not watching, pretending he's aloof or he doesn't care, he's still present. And wherever you've been and whatever you've done and whatever you've hidden and whatever you've sinned, you must know he was there calling you beside you, watching over the sin you did against him and never calling you out to make an account for it, left you for dead, though he could have. He was there all along. And now this morning, it's quite possible that he is saying through this text, you can never escape me, Christian. You're mine. You belong to me. I will never leave you alone until you come back to me, until you go back to your father. You'll never be right before man until you're right before me. 
God doesn't need to see your file. God doesn't need to access your database. God doesn't need to run your record. He's already witnessed everything. He desires relationship with you, and he wants it to change. He doesn't want to be one of condemnation. He wants it to be one of reconciliation. Many times we use this text to minister to those dear women who have aborted their children, never knowing that they took a life, because David is clear, life begins at conception, regardless of what our governor might think or our lawmakers, a little different life. God has always been ready and present to receive you into his kingdom, though he might see your unbelief, he wants to witness your belief in coming to him, the inescapable God. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are believers here, we thank you for the fact that you see us. We moan for the fact that we have sinned in your sight and thought and forgotten and become ignorant to the truth that everywhere we go, there you are. But we are thankful because we want to be brought back to you. We want to repent. We want to be near you and seen by you. But those of us in the room who perhaps, maybe, are not Christians, we fear this seeing God, this inescapable God. And we ask that you would let the knowledge of this truth, the knowledge of Psalm 139, open the eyes and bring them the repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth, having escaped Satan, being held in his clutches. We ask that this would be the state of everyone who does not believe, even today, and we pray for your blessing of salvation upon them. Bless your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.